chapter 16, verse 18 through 18:22 are laws concerning the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. So where does he begin? In chapter 16, verse 18, he begins with the judges. And he talks about how you're to appoint your judges. And you're like, what does that have to do with honoring your mother and father? But remember, your mother and father is your first, most primary, and most unconditionally loving authority. And if you cannot honor and love your own parents who gave you life and love you more than anybody else, then how are you going to honor any other authority? And so what he's setting up is, if you're supposed to treat your parents like this, then this is the way you treat your judges. And then your judges are supposed to act in a way that is worthy of honor. And so what he's going to deal with in these judges here is the way that they conduct laws. He says that your judges are responsible for enforcing laws, which means judges shouldn't enforce laws to get the honor of the people or get the, the, get the, to make the people like them. They are to be an authority figure in the same way that the parents are supposed to be an authority figure. And you people are to respect and obey the judges like you're expected to obey your parents. And so honoring your mother and father is not just your own parents, it's all authorities. It's all authorities. The parents are just the first authority and the most loving authority and the most long-term, most involved in your life authority. And the idea is, if you're supposed to treat them this way, then you're supposed to treat all the others this way. And if you can't even treat your own parents this way, you're not going to treat the other authorities this way. Your parents are a good place to start to learn how to be respectful to authority. Because they love you. They're taking care of you. They're investing your life. All those other authorities probably are not going to even know you. And so if you can learn to trust and respect and honor that kind of authority, then it'll be easier to carry that over into other people. And we know that. We've seen that in culture. We've seen that in societies. Usually when kids are disrespecting other authorities all the time, I can tell you right off the bat that's probably how they treat their parents and that's where they learned it. And you you can tell by the way they treat it. They're really respectful. You're like, the only place they learned that was from their parents. And it carries off because that's the person who has them the most, especially in this day and age where there is no shipping them off to public schools and that kind of stuff. So he goes through that and says, he gives examples about how not to plant the Asher trees. So an Asher pole, he talks about Asher poles and about not planting them, tearing down. Asher pole was a sacred tree carved to look like the goddess Asherah. And these poles would operate as an authority over the judges and over the land. And they represent the female goddess and the land. And so what he's saying is that you must not plant any kind of these trees, verse 21, a sacred Asher pole near the altar of the Yahweh your God, which you were to build for yourself. You must not erect a sacred pole, a thing that Yahweh your God detests. You must not sacrifice to him a bull or sheep that has blemishes or any other defect because it is considered offense to Yahweh. And you're like, what does this have to do with honoring mother and father? This sounds like idolatry again. Well, it is because you're now turning to another God as your authority. And so you're not only violating the command of idolatry, you're not only violating the command of having other images, but you're violating the command of creating another authority 
to honor, that you're placing that authority above Yahweh, and therefore you're not honoring Yahweh. And this is a huge temper temptation because Asherah poles were very common all throughout the Canaanite land. And they would build them everywhere. And it became a physical representation of Asherah, who was like their goddess, their mother, the one that provided them life and animals and crops. And if you want children, animals and crops more than anything, because that's the day and the age of the culture, you can be very tempted to begin to honor the thing of that culture that provides those three things. And therefore, you're not honoring God anymore. And so that's why he comes back to the idolatry again thing, because he says, ultimately, in the end, you're not honoring your father, the father, who gave you life and adopted you and brought you into the land. And he goes back into the worshiping. You're not allowed to worship any other things. And so this is what's interesting is that he takes the first command that can feel very like no other gods, no other gods, no other gods. And that can feel very non-tangible, non-concrete. Sometimes it's hard, you can't see God. Sometimes it's hard to know God. But the physical gods are right there. Now, with this command, he shifts it over and he says, you're to honor your father. Worshiping other gods is not honoring God me and what he's done is he's taken the first command from a religious worshiping god kind of a sense to a relational intimate relationship sense like you have with your father or mother and he says in the same way that if you dishonor your mother and father you're going to feel that immediately relationally you're going to feel the breakdown of the relationship. You're going to feel the, the breakdown of the love. You're going to feel the breakdown of your familial bond with them. And if you're tempted to think of the first command as just some God or another God, and that's like in America today, we, just, we change gods like we change restaurants and clothes, then you need to now think of it as you're going to do to me the same thing you're doing to your parents. You need to think of me as your father. And you need to think of me as your relationship. You need to think of me as a familial thing. And if you dishonor me by going after other things, then you're going to affect this intimate, relational, loving relationship we have. And so he unpacks the first command in a more intimate way, in a more concrete way. And this is why this is so interesting. I think you guys have been around long enough to talk to enough people to realize that a lot of times when people have a hard time worshiping God, it goes back to some kind of thing that they had with their parents, a relationship with they had their parents. It's so interesting that not only going after other gods can dishonor Yahweh in the same way as dishonoring your parents, but the way that your parents treat you can affect whether you will know or love God. And there's, there's a connection there. And even times there's where God comes along and says, I will be a father to the fatherless. And if you take that literally, you're like, you're not going to come down and be my dad and pay the bills and take me to school and get me clothes. Like, but it means that when the church goes to the people who have no fathers and begins to act like a father to them, it's, they are the image of God. They are the spirit of God. They are God's hands actively involved in the life of a child who has no father. 
this shows you how this command is widespread. The way that you have the relationship you have with your parents is going to affect the way that you're going to view God. And the way that you treat God is like the way that you would treat your parents. And so you need to think of your family as God is your father. And that's the kind of relationship he wants with you. And when you go after other gods or when you put other things like money, financial security, or the, 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 the decorations of your house or your job or whatever above God, then imagine how your parents would feel if you said, I want different parents. <laughs> or how your spouse would feel if you say, you know what, somebody else makes me happier. And that's what God's trying to do here. He's dealt with the practical, local, but notice how he starts with parents, moves out to judges, and then moves to God. And says, this is supposed to be a familial, relational authority. And it goes right back to what I told you earlier. Not only do the children have a responsibility to obey their parents and then obey authorities, but the parents have a responsibility to give the children a reason to honor them by teaching them about God. And it's a relational thing, and that's what God's trying to create here. This isn't just some sterile honor your mother and father, and fathers don't exasperate your children. This is a familial bond where you love and honor them because they've invested in you and taught you. And not that your honor is dependent upon that, but you're not making it easy for your children if you haven't been invested in them. Because... The way that they view that is the way they're going to treat every other authority in their life. And if you're not investing in them, if you're not teaching them, then they're not going to know what it means to honor you, which means they're not going to honor anybody else, which means society is going to break down. And then if you're not investing in them and you're not teaching them, then they're not going to know who God is and you're going to wonder why they're going to be emotionally disconnected from God. But at the same time, children, you have a responsibility to worship God and honor Him in the same way that you would want or think that you should be doing this with your parents as well as other authorities. This is a two-way command. This is a two-way command. Now, it doesn't say, I don't have to honor you if you don't teach me about God. (laughs) But it does say that you're setting your children up if you're not being God to them, so to speak, in that teaching kind of a sense. Does this make sense? I hope you're beginning to see that these Ten Commandments truly are way more comprehensive than what we realize. I mean, they really do cover all areas of life because this is what God meant. He gave you two commands. Love Yahweh with all your heart, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And the Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you unpack those commands a little bit further in a general way of the Ten Commandments. And then he's beginning to unpack those Ten Commandments in more real-life examples. And so the law really is only love God and love others. And all of this is just examples of how you practically put that into practice. This is the practice. Don't think of the law as some overwhelming burden of all these laws Because if you think of it that way, it becomes legalism. Think of it as, I'm to love God and love others. This is what I want people to do for me. I want people to love me. Do unto others as you would have them done unto you. And then you're like, I don't know exactly what that looks like, though. Then you have the law. 
And the law begins to unpack what does this look like. Now we have the Holy Spirit and the law written on our hearts. And now where the law is limited, because it only speaks to Israel and their culture and their time period, with their um, customs, we have a completely different culture. We're dealing with Instagram and Facebook and presidents and, and cars and technology and iPhones and, and neighborhoods that look drastically different than the Israelites and profession, post-industrial revolution, mom and dad go to work, kids go to public school. What does it look like to unpack that? There's no law. This is why the law is limited. This is what Paul meant, that the law can only do so much. I mean, how in the world do you apply this law today in America? It's hard. And it's impossible to translate the law from their culture to our culture, especially when we don't even fully understand that culture. And no matter how much we study, we're still not going to fully understand because so many writings haven't survived. So this is why we're not under that law anymore, because that law doesn't speak to us. It doesn't speak into our culture. That's why God, according to Jeremiah 31, 31, says that he took the Holy Spirit and he wrote the law in our hearts. And now I have the Holy Spirit law in my heart and the Holy Spirit can convict me. And now we all have the divine counsel of God. And so we come together as a body of Christ and we talk about these issues and we pray, we seek the Holy Spirit and we talk together about what does it mean to love God and love others with Facebook, Instagram, technology, phones, fragmented families throughout the day, different geography of work in public schools. What does it mean to homeschool versus public school versus private school? How do you become the best Christian you can in all three of those environments? How do you do this? And this is what we need to do as a church. We come together and we pray and we talk and we understand the law first. Because this is still good. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. This is God's will. And this is where we learn His heart. But then through the Holy Spirit, we translate it into our culture today. And the Holy Spirit speaks through the community. Just like God spoke through the community of Israel. And I don't, I'm not completely dependent upon you and you alone to tell me what God. But I also am still dependent upon you to have a better understanding of what God wants. Because we all have a divine counsel. And we learn the lesson from Elijah and Moses and the men of God where even righteous people can screw it up. And that's why I need community. Because we know how hard it is to hear the Holy Spirit sometimes. Does this make sense? So chapter 17 Verse 14. When you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you take it over and live in it, and then say, I will select a king like all the nations surrounding me, you must select without fail a king whom Yahweh your God chooses from among your fellow citizens. You must appoint a king, and you must not designate a foreigner who is not one of your fellow Israelites. Moreover, he must not accumulate horses for himself or allow the people to return to Egypt or do so. For Yahweh has said to you, you must never again return that way. Furthermore, he must not marry many wives, lest his affections turn aside, and he must not accumulate much silver and gold. And when he s sits on his royal throne, he must make a copy of this law 
on a scroll given to him by the Levitical priests. It must be with him constantly, and he must read it as long as he lives, so that he may learn to revere Yahweh his God and observe all the words of his law and these statutes and carry them out. Then he will not exalt himself above his fellow citizens or turn from the commandments to the right or the left, and he and his descendants will enjoy many years ruling over his kingdom in Israel. So the criteria for the king, he has five criteria, and these are very important. Because God begins and says, when you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, and you take it over and you live there, and you say, I will select a king like all the other nations surrounding me. He already knows that they're going to want a king one day. They'll want somebody to rule over them. Here's what's interesting. Who was the first king that Israel selected? Saul. And everybody teaches that it was wrong that they wanted a king, which is kind of true, but it's way more specific than that. Notice the phrasing. When you select a king and you want one like the other nations, that is the real fault. The real problem is that when you get to Samuel chapter 8, and it says, we want a king like all the other nations, that's the real problem. So he's not saying, if you select a king, or the day that I give you a king. He's saying, when you disobey me and want a king that is not like a king like mine, or the one that I want, this is at least how you're supposed to regulate them. I know what kings are like, and I know that they're supposed to be regulated. So they won the king like all the other nations. The problem with that is back in Exodus 19, when he first chose them and made a covenant and he adopted them, there's three things that he told them. I will make you my special possession. I will make you a kingdom of priests and I will make you a holy nation. Now remember the word holy means absolutely unique and unlike anything else. And only God is unique. Only God is holy. And only when we attach ourselves to him that we become unique and we are used in a unique way. They are turning around to all the pagan nations that are all like each other. They're all human. They're all sinful. They have no desire to serve God. And they're saying, I want a king like them. I don't want to be unique anymore. I don't want to be connected to Yahweh. I don't want to be different. We want to be just like them over there. That's a huge insult to the God who saved them and redeemed them. So he says, here's what's interesting though. He says, when you ask for a king like all the other nations, then when you get that king, this is how he's not supposed to be like all the other nations. He then goes in and he regulates the king and says, I don't want him to be like all the other nations. And deep down inside, you don't really want him to be like all the other nations either. And so these are the five criteria. First, he must be an Israelite and not a foreigner. And he must be one that God chose. So he must be a king that God chose, that Yahweh wanted for them. And he must not be a foreigner, he must be an Israelite. Now we have the same rules, and every nation has the same rules that they have to be an American citizen or whatever. But the reality is, he's saying this, if this is my Abrahamic covenant people, then somebody outside the Abrahamic covenant cannot rule over you. 
because they're not going to be a part of the covenant. They're not going to be promoting my agenda. Therefore, they can't rule over my people and my covenant. And so this is the exact same thing. Remember when Moses, he had not not circumcised his son and God called him to go to Egypt. And on his way to Egypt, he still hadn't circumcised his son. And right when he was crossing the border to go into Egypt, that's when God got really mad at Moses and said, how dare you go in and deliver my covenant people when you haven't even made your own children a part of the covenant? How can you represent me and lead me when you don't even do it in your own family? And God got really angry. And that's the same point he's making here. He must be a part of the Abrahamic covenant. He must be a part of the people if he's going to rule over them. The second criteria is he must not, he's not allowed to accumulate horses. Now, does that mean God's anti-horses? No, because God created the horses and he called them good. So the reality is this is not anti-horses. Two things here. They're not allowed to collect horses and they're not allowed to go back to Egypt to get them. And in fact, he goes on and says they're not allowed to go back to Egypt for any reason. Remember, Egypt is a symbol. their slavery, their, their pre-redemption days. So they're not allowed to go back to that old life, that old man or woman kind of a nature. But specifically, horses were military technology. Now, I know we don't think of horses being technology, but technology is basically anything that allows you to do work faster or more efficiently. The wheel is technology. The plow is technology. It's not computers. It's just anything that extends beyond your physical capabilities to help you do something better, more efficient, or more easily. And so horses were that. They were chariots. They were warriors. And so they would ride them out into battle, and they would give them an advantage over the enemy, and they would pull chariots, which gave you an advantage over the enemy. So basically what God is saying is they're not allowed to amass military technology that gives them an advancement or extends them past their own physical capability. And the question is, why? Then they will say that it's our technology, our skills, our abilities that delivered us militarily and not Yahweh. They were going to be completely dependent upon Yahweh. Now here's what you must understand. They already have horses and chariots. God gave them horses and chariots. All throughout the Bible, there's this thing called the horses and chariots of Yahweh. And there's only a few times that we're given glimpses to them. And one of them is when the horses and chariots came down and took Elijah away. And Elisha says, the horses and chariots of God. The other time, two specific moments, there's other cases, but these are two. There's another time when they were, the enemy, Ben-Hadad, leading the Armenians, came and surrounded Elijah's village, ready to kill him, because they're like, well, if Elijah's giving them help against us, then let's go kill the prophet. So they surround his entire village, and the servant with Elijah is freaking out and saying, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, we have no army to protect us. And Elijah says, open his eyes, Yahweh, so he may see the horses and chariots of Yahweh. And his eyes open up, and he sees this huge angelic host standing guard around Elijah in the city. What is interesting is the prophet is the horse and chariot of God. 
because he, remember I told you last week, he sits on the divine council of Yahweh, and he has direct access to God, and he is the one who basically, in a way, commands the horses and chariots of God, who are the angels. Now, I don't know exactly how that works. Nobody does, because in some sense, we know that only God commands the angels, but in another sense, the prophets do have this authority, this power to kind of direct things. And when we get to the prophets, which they're down the road, there is a certain sense that they will say things and God will back them up. And there's times that God tells them to do things and they do exactly what God says. And they, they have a freedom to kind of do things on their own and God has given this power to do that. At the same time, when they screwed up, they're killed by God because he takes that very seriously. When, when he gives them that much control and that much power, just like Moses, when they disobey, they're kicked out of the land. So they are the horses and chariots. So God is basically saying, I am your military. You don't need technology. If Israel were today still under the law and still under these commands, and that's a much bigger, complicated question I'm going to deal with tonight. But if they were still obedient to this today, then this means no aircraft carriers, no airplanes, no helicopters, no battleships, no nothing. They're not allowed to have any kind of army beyond just human beings and swords. That's it. Now, when you go through the Bible, here's what's so interesting. In Egypt, how did God defeat Egypt? The plagues, nature. How did he deliver them through the Red Sea? Nature. How did he defeat them, um, the enemies, when they went into battle? A lot of times he confused the enemy and made them attack each other. And then when we get into the Jordan, we're going to find that he parts the Jordan River. When he goes and attacks in the book of Judges, there's a place where they're going against Sisera, and he makes the river flood and attack them. When David is fighting his son Absalom, he makes, God makes the trees attack the people, and they kill over 11,000 people on one day the trees do. Almost like Lord of the Rings. Okay. All the time you see God using nature, 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 because there's two things that God has created, nature and humanity. And humanity is in rebellion against God, but nature still obeys and still obeys every single time God commands them. And so he has created his own weapon, and it's called nature. And he can use it however he wants. And C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia picked up on this idea, and even J.R. Tolkien a little bit with the Ents. And the idea is that they already have an army, and it's all of God's creation that still obeys them. And it is the horses and chariots, the prophet, who is in league with these angels. They don't need a military. And every single time they have a victory, they will be reminded that God is with them and God can do anything. If they depend upon their own technology, then they will fail. And remember, when they depend upon themselves, battles become epic because the enemy is formidable. But when they depend on God, battles are not epic because no one is formidable compared to Yahweh. And so this is to keep them trusting in Yahweh and not military strength. And we know to this day the greatest thing that nations depend on more than anything and put more money into and brag about more than anything is military might. And God is keeping them from that. God is keeping them from that. 
So it's not an anti-horse thing. It's an anti-using things for military technology. The third is that the king is not allowed to have multiple wives, to accumulate wives. Now remember, wives sometimes was a very common thing to help you get things done on the farm. Abraham had multiple wives. Jacob had multiple wives. And a lot of times it was allow you to have more kids more quickly so that you can have more hands on the farm to work things. But there's also a certain point where you have to have a certain amount of wealth to support more wives and more children. And you have to be extremely wealthy to have lots of wives and lots of children because it's more mouths to feed and more people to take care of. So only the truly wealthy could collect wives and children. Now the king doesn't really work in a farming multiple hands kind of a sense. The king is mostly a politician and a military person and he has an army and servants for that. So why does he need multiple wives and multiple children? These are treaties. Marrying other women are treaties. We see this a little bit in the medieval period, although they weren't completely dependent upon it like the people in the ancient Near East were. So basically the idea is if I were a king and there's a king over here next to me in Aram and I want to make a treaty with him, then I would give him my daughter to marry him and he would give me his daughter to marry me. And then when I have children by his daughter, his daughter and his grandchildren are in my family. And this does two things. One, it ties our bloodlines together. And bloodlines were incredibly important in the ancient world in a way that we don't think about anymore. And so that one's hard to explain, but you just got to trust that once your bloodlines are mixed, then you've become family. To attack your family would be wrong. That doesn't mean that kings didn't do that. <laughs> but it just puts you at an extra level of accountability. The second thing is, is that I am less likely to attack him and destroy his home when my child and my grandchildren are in his home. And so it keeps me accountable. Now, once again, we know that there are people who are evil enough that they're willing to kill their own children to get power. But once again, you reduce that number significantly. A king is willing to do a lot of things to get what he wants. You mix bloodlines it reduces the amount of things he's willing to do. If he has children and grandchildren, it reduces even more how many kings are willing to violate that. And so it reduces the amount of the, 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 his, his boldness and that kind of thing. So it's a treaty. So why does God forbid this? One, God's kind of made it very clear that it's not his ideal, multiple wives. Two, that just causes a whole bunch of problems that we see all throughout the Bible. But three, you're relying on treaties with other nations, not God, to protect your borders. You're relying on other pagan people who do not share your same beliefs, and you're relying on treaties to protect you rather than God. When God said, if you obey me and serve me, then I will secure your borders. And you're saying, yeah, I don't think he'll do that. I've got to make a treaty over here. But second... And most importantly, is that when you're marrying into these families, you're bringing their pagan daughters into your family. And they're going to have kids, and your kids are going to be pagan children. Now here's the thing. It is very hard to raise three girls. It is going to be next impossible to be 
physically and intimately and relationally involved with multiple women and multiple children. There's no way that anybody has enough time to run a kingdom, fight wars, do all the things that God wants, and take care of a hundred wives and the three, four hundred children that come with that. You're not going to be invested. And if you want an example of how there's no way any guy could ever be a father to that many kids, read the story of David. When he has hundreds of wives and hundreds upon hundreds of children, he's a crappy father to all of them because he cannot divide his time that much. And by the time we get to Solomon, we're talking about thousands of wives. And he's going to have at least a child with each one of them, a male child, because that's what seals the treaty. So here's the thing. Not only are you not fulfilling the great commission of being fruitful and multiplying and raising your children as images, and Deuteronomy, teach your children when you lie, wake up and walk and lie down, because you can't physically do that. But at the same time, there's no way you can be invested in your life. So who's primarily raising your children? These pagan women. And when you die, who becomes king? Your son. And your son's been raised with what gods? The pagan gods. And now you have a foreigner ruling over the chosen people of God. You have idolatry ruling over the chosen people of God. And that's why God... So he says right here, lest they turn your heart away. And what's interesting is Solomon, God said, whatever you want, Solomon, I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God was so pleased with Solomon that he gave him everything else that God, Solomon could have asked for. And he gave him money, gave him power, he gave him wealth, everything. And what's interesting is none of those things led Solomon astray. It was his multiple wives that led him astray. The one thing that God did not give him that was forbidden. And that's the thing that Solomon pursued. And that's what led him astray. And so God does not allow that. The fourth is this. The king has not amassed large personal fortune. He's not allowed to pursue wealth. This includes taxes. He's not allowed to do taxes. And we know that other than military, money is the biggest thing that has spanned all nations in greed and power and that kind of stuff. So money is the obvious one. You just flip on the television, that one becomes obvious. And fifth and final is that this king was to make a copy in his own hand of the Torah. He was to copy all five books of the Bible in his own hand and then read it on a daily basis so that his heart would not go astray. This would guarantee that he was in the Word of God and writing and copying things makes you pay attention even more. And verse 20 gives us the reason. Then he will not exalt himself above the others. This is the primary purpose. God did not want a king with absolute power. And God did not want a king who was trusting in other things other than Yahweh. Because God didn't want a king that was like all the other nations. Now when you get there in chapter 8, they're going to want a king like all the other nations. And God picks Saul. But God picks Saul to give them exactly what they want. He gives them Saul to punish them. You want a king like all the other nations? Then here you go. And then what's very interesting is in chapter 8, God says to Samuel, make sure you tell them that when they get that king, he's going to tax you like you would not believe. 
and he's going to take your daughters and force them into marriages that you don't agree with. And he's going to take your sons and force them to fight wars that you don't agree with, to take lands from other people that you'll never get to see. Remind them that this is what's going to happen. And then the interesting thing is when they finally anoint Saul and they put him as king, Samuel gives his farewell speech. I love Samuel. He's like one of my favorite prophets. He fits my personality because Samuel gives his farewell speech and he says, on that day when your king taxes you and takes you and he goes through all these horrible things that kings always do, he says, remember on that day, I told you so and don't come to me for help. I'm gone. And he leaves and he never speaks to the people again. That's his farewell speech. I told you so. Nobody's going to help you because this becomes their judgment from God. And the thing is, even when they get David, who becomes the ideal king, and he is the one that God picks, the power corrupts him too. And he's a scumbag that nobody would ever want him dating their daughter. And he's a horrible, evil person, actually a little bit worse than Saul, because this power corrupts people. And God knows this, because ultimately the prophet was supposed to be the one, because the prophet was held in a lot harder check by God than everybody else. And so what God is doing is he's relimiting the power of the king, which means God is against absolute power. He's against monarchies. Because what God wanted more than anything was a theocracy, a God-ruling government. And that's why the, the second really horrible thing that makes Israel's request for a king was that they have rejected me, Yahweh their God. That's who they really had rejected. So these are the regulations on the king, that he is to be completely dependent upon God, which means technically he's not really a king. That's the whole point. Not only is God saying you shall honor your leaders, but there's a sense that you are to hold your leaders in check and accountability. In fact, to honor your leader is to hold them accountable. To keep leaders unchecked and not accountable is not honoring them because they're going to go astray and they're going to lead you astray. 